The title of today's message is called this, We Must Occupy. We Must Occupy. I'm already getting smiles and head nods at the title. The book of Judges <clears throat> describes a period between the leadership of Moses and Joshua where Moses has died and Joshua has taken over leadership. If you remember, Moses has taken the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery into freedom. They've walked through the Red Sea. They've seen all kind of miracles and such. And they walked around the wilderness for 40 years, uh, which should have been about a nine-day journey into the promised land. But then after Moses is gone, Joshua takes over, and Joshua takes the Israelites right into the promised land within about three days. 40-year journey he accomplishes in three days. Well, we come to a place at the end of Joshua where Joshua's on his deathbed. Joshua is dying, and we find out he dies in actually Judges chapter 2. Some believe before, but for the purposes of this series, we're just going to call it Judges chapter 2. Joshua is no longer leading. And the time period of Judges is this time when Joshua dies until God sets forth the first king of the Israelite people. If you know who the first king of the Israelite people was, just shout his name. King Saul. We did a whole series on the study of David. It was like 85 weeks. And a lot of it we talked about King Saul and how David had to honor King Saul even though King Saul was totally corrupt. For those of you that want to talk about do I honor leadership, that ain't right. Yes, you do. It's, it, 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 and if you don't want to abide by that, then you live in your kingless kingdom because I don't get a vote against my king. And whether it's Trump, whether it's Biden, whatever it is, I have to honor them. doesn't mean I agree with them. It doesn't mean I have to say what they're doing is right. But when I talk about the disagreement, I do it in a way that is honoring to the person because the point is always redemption. Okay. So in this time between Joshua and King Saul, we have about a 340 to 350 year period. God appoints no leader over the people. So this is a time when they are to be the most dependent on God. I want to describe basically three generations going on right here. you got three generations of people. The first generation, I want to call them the wilderness generation. It's the people that grew up under the leadership of Moses. They saw signs and miracles and wonders like crazy. Wouldn't it have been cool to stand at the Red Sea and see God part waters and then once you get through to the other side, see waves crash on the enemy? And, they, and then they wander around for 40 years depending on, on, on miracles, seeing wonders, seeing all this kind of crazy stuff. Then you have this generation I'm going to call the conquest generation. It's the generation under Joshua's leadership. Because, you know, people get old and they die and new generations come up. You got this generation under Joshua's leadership. They're conquering. They're taking back stuff. And at the end of Joshua, and we're going to read it. I got a lot of scripture today. A lot of it's going to be read through. I'm really bogging down in Judges 1, but I really want to set this series up right. At the end of Joshua, God describes all this victory they have over all the enemy territories. But then, coming into Judges... You've got this new generation. They haven't been doing the fighting. They hadn't seen the wonders. And they've got a choice. 
Do we trust in this God that our ancestors and our grandparents and our mama and daddies tell us about? Or do we go our own way and do our own thing? And it perfectly describes where we're at in 2020. A bunch of overprivileged millennials who don't know what it's like to fight a war, but they know what freedom's all about and rights are all about. And I'm a millennial, technically, so I can speak of it, even though I'm not really a millennial. I speak against that junk. For those of you that are millennials, it's not a bad thing. You know, I'm, you know, I'm kind of young still. But we got a bunch of kids who think they know what right, rights are, and this is the generation, they're at the age, they're starting to take leadership over our country. So you got people that are leading these movements that are saying it's okay to loot because we need your stuff and your insurance will cover it. That's, that's actually what the generations are believing today. And then you've got the generations before us who fought battles for our freedom and then ungrateful people under the age of 40, can't even honor a flag or our military. And then, in that generation, on the spiritual side of things, we've got people that have seen great revivals, spiritual awakenings. We've seen it in the church. And now, in the church, to see a wonder or a miracle is almost blasphemy these days because that day's over. And that's exactly where this generation is. They hadn't seen it. They hadn't been a part of it. So it must be over with, and we call it cessationists. We, 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 we've got churches that actually believe there's no modern-day um, apostolic giftings or prophetic giftings. And for those of you that might know, like we actually believe that that is for today because the Bible doesn't say it's not. Well, there's only 12 apostles. What about Paul? You believe there's only 12 except number 13? Or the other ones that apostle laid hands on? It never stops. Jesus appointed apostles and he says, go do greater things than I ever have, which includes what he did. He started with water into wine and ended up with man come out of the, 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 the tomb then himself rising up from the grave, and for some reason, we plead and beg God to heal a cut, and we don't know why we're seeing no power. We're in a generation, we're in a time in the church where nothing seems to be as powerful as it once was. And I speak, we're going to enter into a day in our lifetime where we're going to see it restored. Even if we all old and barely breathing, we going to see it. And if I'm old, y'all either going to be really old or I've preached a funeral. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I love y'all. Joshua did not, I'm relentless. Joshua did not appoint a leader to guide him and to, to guide these people into the nation. So the people are in the most critical place to listen to God more intensely than ever before. There's no leader, there's no king, there's no prime minister, there's no president, there's nothing. Only God. No one knows, there is no set leader anymore. And, and it also kind of reminds me of the climate of where we're at now. No one knows who to listen to. Everyone's got a prophetic word. Some of them seem to line up, some of them don't. 
Now, I, I, I have words that I believe that, that I fall into, but there's other people who, they listen to this voice and that voice and that voice. They watch a Netflix doc documentary of the American gospel that if you've never seen that, don't watch it because it's the most absurd thing I've ever seen in my life. You may have watched it. Okay, don't. It's horrible. Or watch it and then confirm me. <laughs> and then you got all these people who, we don't believe in this, we don't believe in that, and then they say, well, I don't know what preacher to listen to. Because you got these people that say that, you got those people that say that, you got a president that says this, you, we, we got a, a mayor of Savannah that says, put on masks, a governor says, don't put on them, he says, put it on, he says, don't put it on them, we don't have to, we don't have. no one knows what to do. And for some reason, we're still waiting on governors, and God's like, what about the king? That's exactly where these people are at. And throughout the book of Judges, at the appropriate time, God brings up a leader called a judge. Throughout the, throughout the uh, book, we see 12 judges rise up to lead the people and redeem them back to God. Because the people, throughout these 350 years, they don't listen to God. They do whatever the heck they want. And they only have one requirement throughout this whole time because up until this point, the, the, God has given them all of this stuff. Victory, land, freedom. So I've given all this to you. Nothing of your earning. He says, if you want to keep it, all I'm going to ask you to do is abide in my ways and trust me. And the last chapter in Joshua speaks of all that God's done. So I want to read it to you. Is this okay? Look at verses 2 to 13. Joshua said to the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Aor, lived beyond the Euphrates River, and they worshipped other gods. But I took your ancestor Abraham from the, from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him into the land of Canaan. This is important, land of Canaan. I gave him many descendants through his son Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. To Esau I gave the mountains of Seir, while Jacob and his children went down into Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron. I brought terrible plagues on Egypt, and afterwards I brought you out as a free people. When your ancestors arrived at the Red Sea, the Egyptians chased after you with chariots and charioteers. What did the Egyptians chase after them with? Chariots. This is important. When your ancestors cried out to the Lord, I put darkness between you and the Egyptians. I brought the sea crashing down the Egyptians, drowning them. With your very own eyes, you saw what I did. Then you lived in the wilderness for many years. Finally, I brought you into the land of the Amorites and the east side of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I destroyed them before you. I gave you victory over them, and, and you took possession of the land. Then Balak, son of Zippor, uh, king of Moab, started a war against Israel. He summoned Balaam, son of Beor, to curse you, but I would not listen to him. Instead, I made Balaam bless you. And so I rescued you from Balak. When you crossed the Jordan River and came to Jericho, the men of Jericho fought against you, as did the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, someone say Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a lot of ites. But I gave you victory over them. Who did I just tell you to yell out? The who? Canaanites. What did they have over them? Victory. I gave you victory over the Canaanites. 
I sent terror ahead of you to drive out the two kings of the Amorites. It was not your swords or your bows that brought you victory. I gave you land you had not worked for. I gave you towns you did not build, the towns where you're living where you're living now. I gave you vineyards. I gave you all groves for food. And even though you did not plant them, look at how proud God is. I gave this to you. I did this for you. I brought you victory. I gave you land. I took care of the Amorites and the, the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Parasites and, and, and all the eyes. I took care of all this stuff for you. I took care of all that. I gave you the land. I gave you houses you didn't build. I gave you villages. I gave you olive groves. I gave, I gave you everything. Got the hookup. Verse 14. So fear the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly. Put away forever the idols your ancestors worshipped when they lived beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. Serve the Lord alone. I gave you all this, so serve God, fear him, and don't worship anything else. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose the day whom you're going to serve. Would you prefer the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates? The ones that we took care of? Or will it be the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live now that I took care of? And then Joshua says, but for me and my family, we're going to serve the Lord. And then the people replied, we would never abandon the Lord and serve other gods. For the Lord our God is the one who rescued us and our ancestors from slavery in the land of Egypt. He performed miracles before our very eyes as we traveled through the wilderness among our enemies. He preserved us. It was the Lord who drew out the Amorites and the other nations living here in the land. So we too, we will serve the Lord for he alone is our God. Sounds good. Sounds like a lot of altar call confessions. Oh, I'm going to give up this. I'm going to serve God. For, I'm never going to turn my back on him. Two o'clock comes around. Then Joshua warned the people, verse 19. You're not able to serve the Lord, for he's a holy and jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you abandon the Lord and serve other gods, he will turn against you and destroy you, even though he's been so good to you. But the people answered Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. Joshua's warning him. He's like, listen, if you're going to serve him, you better do it. Because if you don't, he's going to turn on you. And it's going to be bad. America 2020. <laughs> I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there. You're a witness to your own decision, Joshua said. You've chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, they replied. We're witnesses to what we've said. Verse 23, all right then. Destroy the isles among you. Turn your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, we'll serve the Lord our God. We will obey him alone. Y'all hearing what they're saying? So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day at Shechem, committing them to follow the decrees and regulations of the Lord. Joshua recorded these things in the book of God's instructions. As a reminder of their agreement, he took a huge stone, rolled it beneath the terebinth tree before the tabernacle of the Lord. Joshua said to all the people, this stone has heard everything that the Lord said to us. It will be a witness to testify against you if you go back on your word to God. Then Joshua sent all the people away to their homelands. Joshua warned them. 
He's not going to forgive your rebellion. He's going to destroy you. He'll turn against you. You've got to turn to him and serve him wholeheartedly. And they said, oh, yeah, we'll do that. But then for the next 400 years, they live in complete rebellion. So God sends the 12 judges throughout this entire time to try to redeem them back to what they promised God that they would do. To live in peace, to live in a land where they would serve him wholeheartedly. Now it's important to know this. The term judge, when we're talking about the judges that God brings forth in this book, it's not the same word as our judge as someone sitting in a court deciding legal issues. And I think that's the, that's the picture we get of God the Father. Like, like, like he's this judge that like when you walk through the pearly gates, you stand like at a, a man-made you know, podium, and he's like, oh, have you served Jesus? Boop, heaven, hell. No, no that's, that's not what judge means. The word judge is actually the Hebrew word shaphat, S-H-A-P-H-A-T, shaphat. You know what it means? One meaning is heroic leader. The other meaning, which I love this, it's to put right in order to rule. God says, I'm going to raise up a judge to get people back into right standing so that they can rule the place that I gave to them. I'm going to raise up a judge to make the people right so that they can rule the land that they didn't deserve, that they didn't get, that I gave to them. These were the leaders that God brought forth. God did that very same thing to us. He says, I'm going, I am the judge, and I want to make you right so that you can steward the land that I've given you. I have made you from the earth. I've called you to govern the earth. I've called you to occupy the earth. You messed it up in the Garden of Eden. I had to get you out to protect you from eternal damnation. Now I've got to make you right so that you can put the whole thing back in order because right now it's in chaos. There's, there's volcanic eruptions, there's earthquakes, there's tornadoes, the sea's raging more powerful than men, animals are slaughtering humans, and God says, this is never how it was supposed to be. The Bible says the earth is groaning for the sons of men to put it to order. So God says, I'm the judge, I've got to raise up someone to make you right so that you can rule. So you know what he does? Let me get my son... I'm going to give him to you, shed his blood on the cross, and make you right. He has made you righteous with the blood of Christ, the blood of the Lamb. And since he's made you right, has brought you into right standing, now I want you to rule. I want you to occupy. I want you to steward this land, this earth that I gave to you, not by your own earning, just because I'm a father who loves you. But here's the problem. Matthew 6, 31 through 33. So don't worry about these things saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. 
hold up, I think that all the time. Oh, no, COVID hit. I don't have a paycheck. How am I going to provide for my family? How am I going to, what, what, what am I going to get? What, where's the food going to come from? What do I need? How, how am I going to get to the government? How am I going to do this? How, what, what about my job? How do I provide for my kids? How do I, how, how do I, how do I, how do I, how do I, how These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. Gut check. But your heavenly father already knows you need all that stuff. Not necessarily the thing, because we, when we think God knows our needs, oh, well, he, he knows we need peace, and we need, he knows we need, free. no, no, he, he knows you need money to pay your bills. He knows you need a car to drive from your house to your job. He knows that your job needs the resources to carry it out. He knows that your kids need sustenance. He knows that you need a day off so that you can go with your kids. He knows that you need sobriety. He knows that you need freedom. He knows everything you need. He says, I don't want your mind occupied with worrying about what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? How do I pay my bills? How, how, how? He says, I don't want your mind occupied with that. So he gives us the way in verse 33. Seek the kingdom of God above everything else. Live righteously. Live in the right standing that I purchased for you. And I'll give you everything that you need. We are so dominated by our thoughts that we don't have time to rule the land that God gave us. You don't rule your household effectively because you're so worried about your bills, you know, dads and husbands. You're so worried about providing that the moment your wife asks, you snap at her and now you got a relationship issues because it came out of worrying about your paycheck. But you're seeking God? Y'all looking at me with headlights. <laughs> you're so worried about the well-being of your kids that you're stressed and you're overwhelmed in your thought life. And when your kid, who you care about, says, Mommy and Daddy, can I? You say, shut up, leave me alone. And you just cause more damage than what you're trying to fix in your thoughts. Because your thoughts are dominated by what unbelievers' thoughts are dominated. If you were to seek God first, I'll take care of all this other stuff because I've already made you right enough to handle all of the resource. Well, why? So that you can effectively rule. You cannot effectively rule if your thought life is overwhelmed by stuff that you were never meant to think about. You're, you were, you're never meant to think about that. Cannot transparent. Y'all know we got debt free a few weeks ago. You know how much my thought life was, was ruled in March when tithes started going down? Every day, oh, my God, how are we going to pay for the bills? How are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? And then one day God was like, could you just start seeking me, you flipping fool? So I stopped worrying, and I started seeking for days and then weeks and then more weeks 
and then months and then more months. And when I say me, I mean the house. Because I started shifting things like, well, y'all need to start tithing to we're going to be debt free. We're going to be free of this. And everyone started to agree in the spirit. Then all of a sudden, huge offering, we're debt free. You know why God provided that? He says, because you sought me. I know you need the finances. I don't want your thoughts to be dominated by what if. So because you sought me, here you go, now rule. You know, you, you know I haven't thought about one bill these past three or four weeks at all. The one thing I thought about was how do I steward and rule with what God has given us? Do that with your family, with your workplace, with your relationships. Well, the nation of Israel and the people of God, they didn't do that. They, they didn't live like that. And many people neglect this whole thing of judges because it's, it's noted as a very dark place in Israel's history. But this whole book is a beautiful story of how the love of God was always willing to correct the people for one purpose, bring them back. Bring them back. And there are so many kingless kingdoms today that don't seek a king and don't ask the king and don't ask him for his headship. We have kingless kingdoms in America, the earth, homes, jobs, the church. We have operated apart from God. We don't honor leadership. We outvote the king. So how do we get that back? How do we redeem the culture? How do we bring a king back into a kingless kingdom? That's what this series is all about. Y'all interested? Okay. Joshua chapter 1. Or Judges chapter 1, not Joshua. (laughs) Judges chapter 1. Just starting. I hope it's all right. Y'all, y'all getting comfy? Okay, I only get y'all one day a week, so. Verses 1 and 2. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, well, which tribe should go first to attack the Canaanites? Now, wait a minute. We just read in Joshua that God gave them victory over the who? Well, after the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, what tribe should go first to attack the who? The Canaanites. The Lord answered Judah, for I've given them victory over the land. Here, they start off doing the right thing, the thing that Joshua would have wanted them to do. Seek and ask. God, what would you have us do? What do you want us to do? Now, the reason that they're having to ask, who do you want to go in to take the Canaanites, is because you have a perfect picture of where we're at in today. God says, I've given you victory over the enemy. The battle's won. Popular phrase on the cross. It is finished. But just because the battle's won and it is finished doesn't mean you don't have stuff to do. But to do has nothing to do with salvation anymore. But now that the enemy has been defeated, go occupy where the enemy still resides. Because the enemy no longer has authority, no longer has strength, no longer has any right to be in those places. The enemy doesn't have the right to be at Asbury. The enemy doesn't have a right to be in SCAD. The enemy doesn't have the right to be in your home. 
The enemy doesn't have the right to be in Yamacraw. The enemy doesn't have the right to be in Methenham. The enemy doesn't have the right to be anywhere. The enemy doesn't have the right to tell churches to close their doors because of a disease that's only taking care of like 0.1% of the population. The enemy has no right. So God says, take it back. Occupy. Shout that out. And that's going to be the pattern in Judges. When the people ask, when the people seek, God never fails to deliver. And it reminds me of Luke 11. Look at verses 9 through 10. So it is with your prayers. Ask and you'll receive. Seek, you'll discover. Knock, knock, knock on heaven's door. And it will one day open for you. Every persistent person will get what he asked for. Every persistent seeker will discover what he needs. And everyone who knocks persistently will one day find an open door. There's many people that pray and ask God, but they come to closed doors because their heart has not been aligned to get to knocking on the right door because they're not seeking enough to start knocking at the right door. They're not aligning with the right questions because we're coming to the door of God, I deserve this, instead of the door of God's made me worthy, I deserve nothing. So God, I'm coming to you as I know I don't deserve, I know I'm not worthy, so I'm seeking what I need to fulfill your purpose, not mine. Ask and you'll receive. A seeker will discover what he needs. If you're asking and you're not getting, you have to ask yourself, have you not discovered the need to ask for because of your lack of seeking? Well, I've been praying all the time, God, I need this. Are you sure you have discovered what you actually need? I need a paycheck. God says, don't worry about that. I know those needs. See, we got to define needs in our ask. Because we love to ask, well, God, I need, I need to get a job. I need this. I need this to cover that. God says, no, no, no. Those thoughts are for unbelievers. I've got you there. So what are the needs we actually need to ask for? See, this is different because all the preachers are, you need to ask God for a job. You need to ask, God, God says, I know, though, I know that stuff. You seek me, you'll find it. So do you want to know what you need to ask for? Okay, follow me. It's going to come out. It's going to come out. They're asking, God, who, who do you want to go in first to occupy the land? To take back the enemy that the land that the enemy's in, that the enemy's already been defeated. And he says, I want Judah to go in first. What's funny is that the tribe of Judah is actually where Jesus came from. Our God is a lion, the lion of Judah. And Judah was actually the strongest tribe. Now again, the Canaanites are defeated, 
But all the tribes of Israel had to go into the land and take it, occupy it. Jesus defeated death on the cross, but he also gave us something. Look at Luke 10, 19. Look, I've given you authority over all, all, Well, I, well, Kyle, you just don't know what I deal with. All. All the power of the enemy. And you can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them. Nothing will injure you. Just because it's finished doesn't mean we don't have things to do. We got to go in and possess it. We got to go in and occupy it. And the Lord says, I've broken the strength of the enemy and I've given you the authority to walk right in and take back whatever you need to take. So when you ask me and at my door, what are you asking for? God, what do I need to occupy the space you've called me to walk in? If you're a mama or a daddy, you've been called to lead a family. He knows you need money. He knows you need a house. He knows you need jobs. That's not what you need to ask for. Because he says, when you seek me, I'll give you all you need. for. I, I got that. It's what you need to ask. God, what do I need to properly steward when I'm supposed to occupy here? Well, son, you need patience. And then when you start to manifest patience, you'll give time to applying the jobs that never respond to you. <laughs> Y'all see what I'm saying? How do, God, what would you give me to steward so that I can occupy land that the enemy still resides in in my life. How do I occupy my friendships? God, I need the strength to turn my other cheek instead of responding with a punch. It's not what do you need to survive. Because he supplies everything. So what more do we ask for? What do you need to occupy? The space that the enemy still lingers. Even though he has no authority, but you're allowing him to live in your land. We're called to extend the redeeming blood of Jesus into every area of our lives so that all of the power enemy is gone. And if, we're, and if we're going to seek and knock and ask, we have to be ready to follow through with occupying with what he gives us. So look at verse 3. The men of Judah said to, said to their relatives from the tribe of Simeon. Now remember, Judah is the strongest tribe. The strongest tribe. They said, God, who do you want to go in first to take the Canaanites? Judah. So Judah said to their relatives from the tribe of Simeon, join with us to fight against the Canaanites living in the territory allotted to us. 
Then we will help you conquer your territory. So the men of Simeon went with Judah, and when the men of Judah attacked, the Lord gave them victory over the Canaanites and Perizzites, and they killed 10,000 enemy warriors at the town of Bezek. The tribe of Judah partnered with the tribe of Simeon, functioning together to accomplish the mission of God. Let me just say this. If we're going to redeem the culture, and I hear this from every leader in the church, and I want to get it corrected in this message, and please share this with everyone you can, it's not going to happen with, by one church. And I hear it all the time. We've got what Savannah needs. Not all of it. You're arrogant. Pastor. You don't have all the needs. Relentless doesn't have the only key. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 13. The human body's got many parts, and the parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free. All have been baptized into one body by one spirit. We all share the same spirit. We've got a picture of the body of Christ occupying territory in this chapter of Judges chapter 1. You've got the strongest tribe of Judah, and they go to Simeon, and who, by the way, if you read Genesis 29, you'll see the bloodline. It says that there actually there's a bloodline relation between the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Simeon. They're all brothers, and we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all one. We make up one body. Judah's the strongest tribe. Why is Judah going to Simeon? 1 Corinthians 12, a few verses later in verse 22. Some of the parts of the body that seem the weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. Here I give you the problem with large churches. We don't need anyone else because we're big enough. When the most significant thing to the victory of occupying territory could be the most insignificant character, the most insignificant body of believers, what even relentless. Like we, we, we are about a hundred people, which is it's definitely not a large church, but we're definitely not a small one. I don't know if you know church statistics, but the statistical church, if you've got 50, you're considered a large church in America. I don't know if you knew that. But who are we to even overlook a congregation of five? I had a pastor call me from a live church down the road, and he's doing uh, these uh, the, the, these four days of he calls it a tent revival, and um, which he doesn't have a tent yet, but that's neither here nor there, and. Um, you know, we were talking, and you know, he, he, he seems like a good guy. He says, I've asked churches to come, and we want to worship together, um, but no one's partnering. Can y'all come? And quite frankly, I don't know what the heck the point of it is because he couldn't tell me. But I was like, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. <laughs> so you know what I'm going to announce in a couple weeks? We're going to go worship with him. Because it looks so insignificant, but what if, what if, I don't want to miss something. Even if no one shows up and it's like 10 people, if it's bodies, parts coming together, what if? 
That's the occupying of the territory. I don't, I don't want to miss that. Do you? To walk in righteousness, this is okay. <laughs> to walk in righteousness is not just a call to perfection or striving to walk out of sin. It's to walk in the wholeness of Christ's body, which is a unified church, absent of pride, and we all need to realize we need each other to fully walk into the image as Jesus. Look at Romans 12, verses 4 through 5. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. Isn't it funny how like some of the most insignificant parts of our body are the most crucial? Big toe, what does it do? Balance. Fingers. Heads and shoulders, knees and toes. The most, the most smallest parts of the body are the most crucial. And if we're going to walk in this occupying kingdom mandate, we've got to ask God and realize this cannot happen alone. Now, there's a reason I brought up toes. Look at Judges chapter 1, verse 5. While at Bezek, they encountered King Adonai Bezek, and they fought against him, and the Canaanites and the Perizzites were defeated. Ananias Bezek escaped, but the Israelites soon captured him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Dang. People of God. Ananias Bezek said, I once had 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off, eating scraps from under my table. God's paid me back for what I did to them. And they took Jerusalem, they took him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Now, I find it interesting because the name Ananias Bezek actually meant the Lord of Lightning. He presented himself. He was a strong military leader. The Lord of Lightning. What'd they do? Cut off that man's toes. And lightning struck a chord with me. Because Jesus described Satan one time. Luke 10, 18 through 19. Yes, he told them, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. I've given you authority over all the power of the one who fell from heaven as quick as lightning. He presents himself as big and as strong and as powerful, but he fell. He has no authority. I've given you the authority over him, and you can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them all, and nothing's going to hurt you. No matter what the enemy presents himself as to you, God has already seen him fall and has given you the authority to walk over him. But what's interesting in this passage is the very thing that this enemy, the Lord of Lightning, needed to be a powerful warrior was his toes and his thumbs. Why? What do you hold a sword with? How do you walk forward and march? Your, your, your thumbs and your toes. Did you know that in Roman culture, you could not be enlisted in the military if you were missing thumbs and toes? And it was such a big deal that parents would even cut off the toes and thumbs of their babies so that they would never get enlisted? So when Adonai Bezek was stripped of his thumbs and his toes... Every possibility of military strength was just ripped off of him. He had no authority. 
He had no military advantage. He could not walk forward. That's exactly what God says he did to Satan. He fell like lightning, and I stripped his authority. And yet we walk as a divided church, running from a devil, stripped of all authority, and we let him reign when he has no ability to reign. You want to, you know, you want to know why the enemy only has a power of suggestion and only has a power of trying to make us scared? Because he ain't got no thumbs and toes. He's got no authority. He has no ability to win. He has no military strength. And we're running from a devil when we're supposed to occupy what he's living in. Well, you don't know what it's like to fight addiction. No authority. You don't know what it's like to fight poverty. No authority. There's no power in it. But what are you asking for so that you're occupying in a place where he's got no ability to take it back from you? Does this make any sense? Look at verses 8 through 18. The men of Judah attacked Jerusalem and captured it, killing all its people and setting the city on fire. And then they went down to fight the Canaanites, living in the hill country, the Negev, in the western foothills. Judah marched against the Canaanites in Hebron, formerly called Kiriath Arba, defeating the forces of Shishai, Ahiman, and Talmai. I've been working on my pronunciation. pronunciation. From there, they went to fight against the people living in the town of Debir, formerly, known, formerly called Kiriath Sefer. Caleb said, I will give my daughter... Aksa, in marriage to the one who attacks and captures Kiriath Sefer. I wish marriage still worked like that. I'd be fighting like a boss. <laughs> Probably lose quite a few battles, but I'd be fighting. I'd be trying. <laughs> I'll give my daughter to whoever went, attacks and captures the beer. I mean, the, the beer. The beer. The bear. Verse 13, so Othniel, the son of Caleb's youngest brother, Kenaz, was the one who conquered it, so Aksah became Othniel's wife. When Aksah married Othniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field. As she got down off her donkey, Caleb asked her, what's the matter? She said, let me have another gift just like a woman. Always want more. No, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just, <laughs> I, I love y'all. There's a point to this. I'm try, that's why I'm trying to get y'all to... That's why I'm not married. She said, let me have another gift. You've already given me land in the Negev. Now please give me the springs of water too. So Galeb gave her the upper and the lower springs from the tribe of Judah left Jericho, the city of Palms, the Kenites, who were descendants of Moses' father-in-law, traveled with them into the wilderness of Judah. They settled among the people there near the town of Arad and Negev, and then Judah joined with Simeon to fight against the Canaanites living in Zephath. They completely destroyed the towns, so the town was named Hormah. In addition, Judah captured the towns of Gaza, Ashkelon, Ekron, along with the surrounding territories. So Judah takes all these places. 
The Israelites are doing good so far in Judges chapter 1. Too bad it's 21 chapters. They got Jerusalem, Hebron, Debir, Jericho, Zephath, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ekron, all the surrounding territories. They were occupying land, going in the kingdom mandate. They were united in all this. And then in the middle of this, for some reason, we get the details about Caleb offering his daughter to anyone who would fight to take the beer. Now, the man who gets to Othniel will actually find out he's the first judge called to redeem the culture in Judges chapter 3. But I want to focus on, on this chick, Aksa. She receives a husband, and then she asks for a field, and if that's not enough, then she asks for springs of water. And the first thing I'm thinking for, like, like, girl, I mean, you got a husband, you got some land, now you want more? Like, when's enough enough? Like, you just keep asking, asking, asking. But I find it interesting that she has, she knows her relationship with her father, that she can ask whatever she wants. And when she asks her father for more, hey, uh, I want some land, gives her some land, and then she says, her father says, what's wrong with you? And she says, I want some water. I want, I want some springs. I, I, I want, just give me a spring. And he says, I'll, I'll give you the upper and the lower. I'll give you more than enough. Do you realize that in the kingdom of God that the king is our father? What does she get? She got a husband. She got land. And she got springs of water. Do you realize what the Father gave us? We're called the bride of Christ. You know what that means we got? We got a husband. His name is Jesus. And then, because we were made unto right standing with him, he gave us land called the earth, called your family, called your job. And he says, occupy it. And then he says, come and ask. Now, here's the question for earlier. What do I ask? He says, ask whatever you want if you seek me, and I'll give you what you need. What did she ask for? She didn't ask for more land. She said, I want water. Why does she need water? She had to have water to sustain the land. And the, because she asked the right thing, the father knew you're not asking for water because you're selfish. You're coming to me boldly asking for the very thing needed to steward the land that I've given you that you didn't earn only by my giving. What did the Father do? You didn't earn salvation. You didn't earn the earth. You didn't earn any of it. But I love you. I'm your Father. So I'm going to make you right by giving you a husband called Jesus, he's going to redeem you. He's going to make you righteous. He's going to give you land. I want you to, I took care of the enemy. I want you to drive the enemy off the land, occupy the land. Now, if you would just ask me for the water to sustain it, I will give you whatever you need. Approach my throne boldly. You see how that works? He says, ask whatever you need, 
to steward what I've given you. That you didn't deserve. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? She was so bold because she knew she had a relationship with her father. You know what John 15, 7 says? If you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. You want to know why? Because if you're remaining in him, you'll always ask exactly what he knows you need. While everything else is already supplied. You know, she didn't ask for clothes. She didn't ask for food. She said, I want the thing to sustain the land. Because all the other stuff was already given. John 16, 23 to 24, at the time, you won't need to ask me for anything. This is Jesus talking to his disciples about him leaving. I tell you the truth, you will ask the Father directly. 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 Not through a priest, not through Mary. Directly. And he will grant your request because you use my name. How did she ask the Father for the land? She went through her husband. She said, hey, can, can you ask my daddy for some land? And then when he got the land, she went straight to the father and said, can I have some water? What did this just say? Through my name, you ask whatever you want. Because through my name, you got the land that you didn't deserve. You got, you got life. You got, you got everything. You'll receive it, and you'll have abundant joy. You want to know why we're living in a kingless kingdom? Because we step out of the reality of our identity with the Father. We're not trying to steward anything of his. We're trying to do everything of our own accord. It's what I want. I've got goals. It's the American dream. What about his dream? What if the American dream is the idol that we're supposed to drive out? But we don't want to hear that because we worship America over God. Nothing wrong with the land. Nothing wrong with America. But don't exalt it above the Heavenly Father. Like, we, we riot about the American flag touching the ground, but when was the last time you heard anything about a Christian flag touching the ground? But we love God more than America? So Israel's doing good, right? So Israel's doing really good. But then there's a shift. I had someone come to me this week. Um, very strong prophetic gifting in them. And uh, they gave me a word that gave, got me really excited. Because y'all know the vision of this house. If you, if you haven't heard it by now, the vision is that we were to stay under 150, 200, 150 people, raise up leaders and establish and send out for churches, right? And they came to me and said, Pastor Kyle, I'm going to say something to you, but I don't want you to get offended. And when you come at me like that, my first thing is like, oh, God. And they said, um, God's telling me that there's going to be waves and waves of people coming very soon to this, this house. And I got excited, like, oh, that's awesome. People coming, wow, to hear the word, and yeah, it's awesome. Tons of people, that's great. And then they said, 
but don't you get tempted to change the vision. Because when you see thousands coming, it's really easy for a pastor to go, you know, God came to me in a dream last night. And I know we had a vision for 150, but God has shifted. God don't change his mind. It'd be really easy to shift that. Because there's always a shift when pride gets in the way. And there's always a shift when you start depending on us. It happens with revivals. Growth, 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 growth. And then we start saying, well, we've done this, so let's, how do we go into the next area? And then God's like, take my hands off of it. Well, there's a shift. Look what happens in verse 19. The Lord's with the people of Judah, and they took possession of the hill country. But they failed to drive out the people living in the plains who had iron chariots. What did I tell you to remember earlier? Chariots. He already took care of chariots. Chariots was the latest technology of the day. There are iron chariots pulled by horses. And these people who didn't have much are walking under one thing, the call of God, and when they see people with chariots, we can't do that. We ain't strong enough because they started to take matters into their own hands and they failed to drive them out. Verse 20, the town of Hebron was given to Caleb as Moses had promised and Caleb drew out the people living there who were descendants of the three sons of Anak. As impressive as Judah's victory was, it was incomplete. Because they didn't defeat the latest technology. And it wasn't that the Canaanites had military superiority. Why? Because God says, I've given you victory over all of them. But what the church has done is we, 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 we see a chariot. Oh, we, we, we don't know how to tackle that. We've got to learn the technology. We've got to learn the culture. <laughs> Let me just tell you what the Bible says about that in Psalm 20, verse 7. Some nations boast of their chariots and horses, but will boast in the name of the Lord. I'm not saying technology is a bad thing. <coughs> we obviously use it. But don't boast in it. <clears throat> can't put that higher than the power of God. We, we, we can't believe that the influence of a man is greater than the influence of the Holy Spirit on a people called the church, even if they close our doors. Even if a disease closes our doors. Do we exalt that higher or do we exalt him higher? Do we actually believe in such a crazy notion as a hedge of protection? Do we actually believe in the healing power of God? Do we actually believe that when two or more come together, he is here, and if he is here, a disease can't touch me because he is all-powerful? Do we actually believe that? Or do we exalt the chariot? And we all had that chariot in our lives. That thing that when you face it, it's too big. It's too powerful. So you back up. Even though God says, I don't want any of the enemy to stay occupied in your land. <clears throat> I don't want the chariot of gossip to be driving around, of lying to be driving around. I don't want the gossip of sexual morality to be driving around. 
I don't want the, I don't want any, I don't want any of those chariots. Let me occupy every bit of you. I don't want the chariot of religion to be driving around. I don't want the chariot of weakness to be driving around. I don't want the chariot of a false identity. I think the biggest issue is false identity. I believe Jesus was a twofold purpose. It wasn't just salvation. It was to redeem our identity of the Father. Because we, we still do it in the church. It's all Jesus. Read the Gospels. Everything Jesus ever said, he always did one thing. Not be to me. Father, every prayer is Jesus, 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 and Jesus. And Jesus says, pray like this, our Father. Well, it doesn't matter who you say. Maybe it does if Jesus took that much time to tell us how to do it. Well, you're getting into semantics. and you're, but, but maybe we haven't given it enough thought. Jesus is busy praying on our behalf. Approach the Father. Pray to the Father. You know why we don't want to pray to him? Because our identity of the Father is wrapped up in our idea of the American Father, which unfortunately has become corrupt. And we don't like the idea of big bad daddy, so we go to loving Jesus, and Jesus says, no, 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 he is, I am loved because of him. We are one. Three in one. It's not bad, good, and supernatural. The Bible says that we are a peculiar people. But charismatics think peculiar means look crazy. You know what the word peculiar means? It means it looks like you belong to something else. It's the parapoiesis. You look like you belong to another owner. Who are you owned by? Because the Israelites at this point are obviously not owned by the Father. I'm, I'm having, y'all quiet, I'm having fun. <laughs> Look at verse 21. The tribe of Benjamin, however, they failed to drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. Now we just read that they took Jerusalem and set it on fire. And they can't even drive out an enemy when all their houses are burned down? So to this day, the Jebusites, they still live in Jerusalem on the people of Benjamin. Huh. Funny, Jerusalem had already been won, and all they needed to do was occupy it. There's so many areas that remain kingless, and all we've got to do is occupy. But you know why we don't occupy? Because we see that chariot. We see that enemy. Maybe that's why we're given such a simple decree as walk by faith and not by sight. Because when you see it, you walk away from it. Instead of having the faith of the truth that what you see has already been defeated. It's stripped of its thumbs and its toes. And it has no legal authority to take anything from you. If we would just get the notion that it does not have any power... There will be no more struggle and no more battle. You just walk right in. And the battle is just always making sure that you put it under your feet, that you can trample on without a sting. 
where's the battle? In your mind. No, you don't get to come back today. You're out of my land. I was having a conversation with someone about, we didn't, I just need to bury that in my past. And we think that's a good thing. I'm just going to put that in my past. Don't bury it in your past. Get it out your ground. And if, it's, if you've buried an issue in your past and you don't want to unearth it because you've got to face it and it's going to cause you to get sad and have anxiety and stressful, and go ahead and deal with it and unearth it and get it out and don't let it occupy your space anymore. Can I keep going? I'm going to try to be done by 12. I'm not going to guarantee it. Verse 22. I know this is the first message longer, but I've got to set this up. The descendants of Joseph attacked the town of Bethel, and the Lord was with them. They sent men to scout out Bethel, formerly known as Luz. They confronted a man coming out of the town and said to him, Show us a way into the town, and we will have mercy on you. Does anyone see an issue with this? Take care of all of the Canaanites. And they make a deal with the enemy. Because obviously God's not big enough to show them the way. So, she, so he showed them a way in. They killed everyone in town except that man and his family. They, later that man moved to the land of the Hittites where he built a town. He named it Luz, the former name of Bethel, which is a name to this day. You see the compromise? They didn't fully depend on God. They allowed one man and his family to lie, and they relocated the enemy. They were supposed to conquer all of them. God has called us to occupy every area with his glory, with his dominion. But we so often make seamless, okay, and peaceful treaties with unclean things in our lives. The, the, what's going on right here, it says the descendants of Joseph's. There's actually two tribes. It's Manasseh and it's Ephraim. Look what they do in, in the next two verses, 27 to 29. <clears throat> the tribe of Manasseh, they failed to drive out the people living in Beth Shan, Tanak, Dor, Iblian, Megiddo, and all their surrounding settlements because the Canaanites, they were determined to stay in their region. The enemy exalted itself above the power of God. I don't care how determined Satan is. He's still going to lose. But that's not the reality we're living in, is it? Verse 28. When the Israelites grew stronger, they forced the Canaanites to work as slaves. Oh, that's good. Right? The, the enemy's a slave. No, 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 no. The, the enemy's not to, meant to work for you. He's meant to be defeated and driven out. But we make our enemy work for us. Uh, I'm going to keep my drinking habit right here. It's going to stay a slave to me. I don't want to drive it out because I'm good. God's blessing me. God's doing great things. God's promises are great. God's good. God's good. Let me get my slave because this is too much. You know why you can get your slave? Because you're still keeping him in your land. It's called a crutch. No more slaves. Drive them out. Occupy, occupy, all of it. 
but they never did drive them completely out of the land. Verse 29, the tribe of Ephraim failed to drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer, so the Canaanites continued to live there among them. The Canaanites were stubborn. They didn't want to leave. You know what that's called? It's called a stronghold. That's what a stronghold is. A stubborn, unclean thing that does not want to lose its grip off of you. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. We're human, but we don't wage war as humans do. What did they just do with the, hey, if you'll show us a way in, we'll spare your life? They waged war as humans do. Espionage. Peace treaties with the enemy. No, no, no. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons. To knock down what? Strongholds of human reasoning and destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. They've allowed the enemy to live, and now the Canaanites are raising their opinion of we think we should stay, even though God wants them to leave, and they're appearing to be too strong to handle. But did you notice what verse 28 says? It said that Israel grew stronger but still didn't drive out the Canaanites. And I think so many times in the Christian life, we come to know Jesus and we're too weak to drive out certain things. So we put them under submission. But then we grow stronger in our walk with God. But you know what we never do once we get stronger? We don't go drive out the thing that's been under submission and then one day it rears its ugly head and you've got to hold another battle to fight that you should never have to fight again. Maybe that's why later in 1 Samuel, King Saul's got to fight people that these people should have taken care of. You've got to kind of wonder if they would have taken care of the Canaanites, maybe King Saul wouldn't have been so terrible. You've got to kind of wonder if the church would be doing what it's doing. Maybe we wouldn't have to worry about choosing a corrupt leader or a less corrupt leader. But we like to put that all in government. But church comes from the word ecclesia. That means the governing body. So you want, you want to know why America's failing? It ain't Trump. It ain't going to be because of Biden. It ain't going to be because of any presidency. It's because of one thing, the ecclesia. The problem ain't COVID. The problem ain't politics. The problem is the ecclesia allowing homosexual marriage. The problem is the ecclesia not being bold enough to teach the truth. The problem is the ecclesia being full of a bunch of politicians that act just like the politicians in the White House and the Senate and the House of Representatives and anywhere else you want to call it. A bunch of fake people who live this way but claim this. We all put on our suits. We make too many treaties with stuff that we're just never meant to stay. Matthew 10, 1 says it like this. I'm, I'm getting close. Jesus called his disciples together and gave them authority to cast out evil spirits and to heal every kind of disease and illness. You know what the word for evil is right there? Unclean. He says, I want my land to be clean. So cast out all the unclean stuff and occupy it with what's clean. Well, what's clean? You. Because you've been redeemed, you've been made righteous, so spread the blood. Occupy the land. The enemy's been defeated. I took care of him. What you waiting on? 
You think Facebook's more powerful than God? Oh my God, Facebook is sanctioning what I can put on my news feed. You're, you're actually worried about that? I don't know how voting is going to, it's mail-in or, or it's, it's digital and I want to go. You're actually worried about that? Now, I'm not saying these are not legitimate issues. But, it's, but no matter what the issue is, it's never legitimate enough to worry about it. What you have to do is one thing. Occupy the issue. Take charge. Now sit back. The rest of the chapter in Judges chapter 1. The tribe of Zebulon, the other drive out the residents of Kitron. And it, you see, it all started out by, the, by, by one compromise with one family. The tribe of Zebulon, the other drive out the residents of Kitron and Nahal. So the Canaanites continued to live there among them. But the Canaanites were forced to work as slaves to the people of Zebulon. <clears throat> the tribe of Asher failed to drive out the residents of Akko, Sidon, all those places. Verse 32. Instead, the people of Asher moved in among the Canaanites who controlled the land. The enemy was controlling the land. Why? Because they failed to drive them out. Why is Satan controlling the land? Because we have failed to drive him out. Because we believe he has an authority that he no longer has. He's got no thumbs. He's got no toes. He's got no strength. Why are we still scared of that? Likewise, the tribe of Naphtali, verse 33, failed to drive out the residents of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath. Instead, they moved in among the Canaanites who controlled the land. Nevertheless, the people of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath were forced to work as slaves to the people of Naphtali. As for the tribe of Dan, the Amorites forced them back into the hill country. They would not even let them come into the plains. You tell me the people of God were forced out? The Amorites were determined to stay in Mount Harris, Ajalon, Shalbim, but when the, des the descendants of Joseph became stronger, they forced the Amorites to not leave. Work as slaves. Idiots. <laughs> the boundary of the Amorites ran from Scorpion Pass to Selah and continued upward from there. Do you see all the compromise? This is exactly what's happened in our homes. You know, I, I had someone in this church come to me last week and told me the most god-awful thing I could have ever heard. And I know they won't mind me saying this. They said that their stepchild's mother, this girl is 13 years old, her mother said, when I was your age, I was having sex, so if you want to, you can. That, that is the culture of America. But thank God all we do is talk about Jesus dying on the cross in church. Can I be bold enough to say we get it? I'm not trying to take away from that, but what do we do with it? We want to change America? We've got to build our homes again. We've got to father the fatherless. Be mothers to the motherless. We've, we've got to raise up disciples. We've got to look over the overlooked. 
There are, there are some of you in this room, you've been overlooked because you've never, you, you've got gifts that God wants to use for the building of the body of Christ, but no one's looked at you because all they're concerned about is the organization, not the ecclesia. There's been too many overlooked. We make treaties with unclean things and, and Satan basically says, well, as long as you're making treaties, I ain't going to push you back. You, know, you, you retire. You live a good life. I want you to be happy. You think the enemy don't want you to be happy? As long as you're happy and satisfied and not doing anything for God, he, he, he loves that you're happy. You, you go ahead and get your American dream. You do what you want to do. I love that treaty. Now, I'm not saying it's bad to have dreams. I'm not saying it's bad to have goals. But you better make sure they're in line with what he wants. Do I think God wants people to retire and have my nice life? Absolutely. But what, how do you steward retirement? Do you go retire on a yacht and drink it up? Or do you retire and say, God, what would you have me do? How do you occupy the land that was just given? The land of retirement, the land of marriage, the land of a new job, the land, the land of sobriety, the land of this, the land of a family. How do you steward the land? Or do you make peace trees with the enemy? And having said all that, I'm going to close with reading one more chapter. It's 12.02. So I hope this has been okay today. Yeah. I'm going to read Judges chapter 2 because it's basically just a summary of everything. But I want you to see how beautiful this is and also how disheartening it is. Judges chapter 2. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal. The people have been totally rebellious, as you can see. They haven't occupied everything. To Bochum and said to the Israelites, I brought you out of Egypt into this land that I swore to give your ancestors. I said, I'd never break my covenant with you. And for you part, all I ask you to do, don't make any covenants with people living in the land. Just destroy their altars. Wasn't that hard, was it? But you disobeyed my command. Why did you do this? So now I declare that I will no longer drive out the people living in your land. There will be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a constant temptation to you. When the angel of the Lord finished speaking to all the Israelites, the people wept loudly. So they called the place Bokim, which means weeping, and they offered sacrifices there to the Lord. After Joshua sent the people away, each of the tribes left to take possession of the land allotted to them. And the Israelites served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua. The leaders who outlived him, those who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the land he had been allocated at Timnath, Sarah, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. Now remember, wilderness generation of Moses, conquest generation of Joshua, and then verse 10. After that generation died, Joshua generation, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord. Or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sights and served the image of Baal. I want you to remember that, Baal. They abandoned the Lord. 
the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them. And they angered the Lord. They abandoned the Lord to serve Baal and the images of Ashtoreth. <clears throat> this made the Lord burn with anger against Israel, so he handed them over to raiders who stole their possessions. He turned them over to their enemies all around. They were no longer able to resist them. Every time Israel went out to battle, the Lord fought against them, causing them to be defeated just as he had warned. And the people were in great distress. Sounds awful like America. And then the Lord raised up judges to rescue the Israelites from their attackers. Sounds exactly like our father. He bought us with the blood of Jesus to redeem us. Yet Israel didn't listen to the judges. They prostituted themselves by worshiping other gods. Like the God of riches and glory. Like the God of success. How quickly they turned away from the path of their ancestors who walked in the obedience of the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge over Israel, he was with that judge and rescued the people from their enemies throughout the judge's lifetime. For the Lord took pity on his people who were burdened by oppression and suffering. But when the judge died, the people were turned to their corrupt ways, behaving worse than those who had lived before them. They went after other gods, serving and worshiping them, and they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. So the Lord burned with anger against Israel, and he said, Because these people have violated my covenant, which I made with their ancestors and have ignored my commands, I will no longer drive out the nations that Joshua left unconquered when he died. I did this to test Israel to see whether or not they will follow the ways of the Lord as their ancestors did. That is why the Lord left those nations in place. And he did not quickly drive them out or allow Joshua to conquer them all. I told you to remember one word out of that whole passage. <clears throat> Baal. Maybe you've studied Baal. Maybe you haven't. But there's a, there's a word attributed to Baal, Baal worship. That a lot of people don't know about. You know what that word is? Baal was known by quite a few things, but one of those things was a husband or an owner. The great judge, our father, gave us the bride a what? The husband that was Jesus. That is Jesus. You know how we need to redeem the culture. It starts with us driving away every other husband that tempts us to cheat. Because we love to claim Jesus, but there are so many other things in our lives that we give our worship to. There's so many things in our lives that have occupied us that God says that was never meant to stay. We're living in hard times, kingless kingdom. Whether you attribute that to the country or your homes, your families, whatever it is. Throughout the rest of this book, we see judges rise up to redeem the culture. And out of all this with seeking and asking and understanding that God's given us to occupy a land, if we're going to occupy the land, we've got to get this principle first. If we're going to occupy anything, we've got to allow him to occupy 
us. So as we leave today, I just give you a challenge. I give you a decree. I give you whatever you want to call it. It's time to clean the house. Clean the temple. So that we can start occupying and redeem the kingless kingdom of America and the church. Our families and ourselves. Amen.